Himalaya. I'm Colleen Sedmanyi, and this is Yoga for Life. There's an underlying belief that somehow we aren't enough, that we are unworthy frauds and losers. In Yoga for Life, we will uncover these self-imposed limitations that are keeping us from contentment and freedom. We will talk about caring too much what others think, fear of not adding up, seeking comfort, divorce, aging, relationships, grief, power, and of course, sex, one of my favorite topics. In this podcast, you can expect open, real, and raw dialogue about what keeps our hearts heavy, spirit hidden, and potential limited. We will give you yoga tools to peel back the layers, to find compassion and love for the person that is living in your body, and to learn to live the present moment fully with all of its glory and its pain. You're listening to Yoga for Life, a Himalaya learning production. For exclusive content like yoga videos to accompany the podcast that you've just heard, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. Every week, we will clear the slate and begin each podcast with a short meditation. You don't have to know how to meditate. You just sit. So find an easy seat. Make yourself comfortable. Feel the movement of your breath through every cell of your body. Step outside of your body and look at the beauty Notice the rhythm. See the light. Watch the rise and the fall. Slide back inside of your body and feel the beauty. Feel the rhythm. Feel the coming and the going. Feel your ability to receive love and to offer love. Walk into Have courage. Be vulnerable. Be present. You are beautiful. You are perfect. And you are enough. Watch three cycles of breath. Let those three cycles of breath bring tears to your eyes. Tears of gratitude. Tears of connection, tears of compassion, tears of relief. Namaste. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the final episode of our 10-week audio course. You can go back and take the whole course over again, or just pick and choose and listen to any podcast at any time. Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams is our guest today. Called the most intriguing African-American Buddhist by Library Journal, Angel Kyoto Williams is an author, activist, master trainer, and founder of Transformative Change. She has been bridging the worlds of transformation and justice since her critically acclaimed book, Being Black, Zen, and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace was hailed as an act of love by Pulitzer Prize winner Alice Walker and a classic by Buddhist pioneer Jack Kornfield. Her newest work, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation, is igniting communities to have the long-overdue conversations necessary to become more awake and aware of what hinders liberation of self and society. Reverend Angel was the second black woman to become a Zen sensei or teacher and applies wisdom teachings and embodied practice to intractable social issues. She is a leading voice for transformative social change, and in recognition of her work, she received the first Creating Enlightened Society Award from Shambhala International. Her work has been widely covered, including in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Miss, and Essence. Angel notes, love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. She was made for these times. So welcome. What an honor to sit here with you today, albeit through a screen. Thank you for the work that you are doing in the world, and thank you so much for joining us. Today is going to be a little bit like wisdom speed dating. As we sum up our 10-week audio course, as a well-known talk show host would say, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams has the last word. So we have 10 subjects that we would love your insights on. Are you ready? Okay. Before we do that, I just have to take a moment and really thank you and Rodney for your work which has been really just transformative for so many people. And I know people, you know, directly, I live in Oakland and sent many people over to practice. So I have to have this moment to just say really thank you so much for your work and thank you for continuing to lead and continuing to lead with a kind of openness and freshness that allows us to continue to evolve these profound traditions. Thank you for that acknowledgement. It means the world. Have you ever struggled with thinking that you weren't enough? And how do we change that internal dialogue? Oh, yes, of course, from so many different directions. And, you know, there's the often talked about personal directions of, you know, just how you live amongst your family and how you were chosen or not chosen or seen or not seen in family. And little understood by people is the reality of being Black, 
in particular and of color in America and the unique burden of carrying the collective not enoughness that has been expressed and maintained as a truth, as if it were true for black bodied people in this country since its inception, really. And peeling that apart is a very, very deep dive, a very serious work to be done, which is why I'm so profoundly grateful for my practice. I think that the way we get at it is to really, for me, I'm, I'm very committed to embodied practice. And I think much of how we are not able to pierce through wisdom teachings has to do with the way that it's been separated from the body. I believe deeply in the wisdom of the body through my yoga practice as well. So it is really for me about coming to both have analysis, which is really important, right, to understand that sense of where it comes from, you know, how might you have inherited those ideas and feelings and sensibilities. A therapist is a good thing, folks. <laughs> and and also uh, directly sitting with the feeling and getting underneath the feeling until it is really about relating to the sensory experience of it so that you can watch it disintegrate and fall apart and realize that it has no real strength, it has no real solidity, and that changes the relationship that you have to the thought forms that that come about. And so the thought forms get disintegrated by your willingness to presence yourself to them and really be with them at their finest level. Thank you so much. Can you talk to us about Dharma as it is integrated with self-love? Mother Teresa, who I've had the pleasure of working with, says that what you spend your entire lifetime building could and will be destroyed overnight, build anyway. So many feel that we have to find what we might call our dream vocation and then end up being paralyzed for fear of failure or maybe even the imposter syndrome. Can you just uh, talk to us on that? So we have these multiple expressions of the idea of dharma. And so the Buddhist tradition, it's like universal law. And I was really happy to bring the word dharma into the book that I co-authored, Radical Dharma, to really expand that idea into also what you're talking about, which is like your way, your path, like your calling, like what is yours to do? And I think the paralyzing comes from much of what paralyzes us, which is looping on the past and getting ourselves hooked into the future. So being in the present is the way to cut through all of those kinds of machinations that go on. We attach the idea of what it is ours to do to the outcome. And I like to say in the way that many Christians say, like the outcomes are none of your business. What is ours to do is ours to do. And the outcomes are not our business. We don't actually create fruit. We cultivate the soil. We plant the seeds. We cultivate the soil. We nourish. We pray for rain. We pray for rain. And the fruit bearing itself is an alchemical process that has to do with our intention, our will force, our presencing, and the commitment to nourish what is ours to do and then leave the outcomes to unfold as they are inclined to do as a result of mutuality, causality, interdependence, conditions that arise that have nothing to do with us. It does not take away from it being ours to do. So pertinent. In our world, there's so much goal orientation. This is your goal. Put it on your refrigerator. And that builds up these expectations, which invariably are like a New Year's resolution that make you feel more bad about yourself or makes you feel more less than when you don't reach that 
perceived goal. And I think that's really important today. I have four kids in their 20s, and I just see them struggling so much with this thing of expecting to be somewhere by a certain time. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I I totally resonate with that. I just want to say the other problem is a corruption of time. We have time corruption, and we are very caught up in the past and projecting ourselves into the future and avoiding now. And so if we are not corrupting our relationship to time to know that really the only moment that we have that's available to us is now, it dramatically changes all of our weird, it's kind of like funhouse mirror perceptions of our lives. Especially now, we're living in a world of what-ifs and are faced with immense unknown and terror. And we're looking for any light of hope in humanity. The, the sense of fear is paralyzing us. Can you just give us any light on that? You know, it does come back to that sense of the corruption of time. The present moment has everything that we need. And I don't mean that in a trite way, you know, like hang out in the present moment, (laughs) but really throwing yourself all in to what it is that's in front of you, the relationship that's in front of you, the work that there is to do that's in front of you. If that relationship in this moment or the task in front of you in this moment is to just feed your children, like do just feeding your children. Zen folks are famous for the use of just. And the just is the idea of putting yourself all in. Don't leave anything behind to be looking over your shoulder. So there's no part of yourself left behind to be looking over your shoulder, wondering whether you're doing the right thing or not right thing. That's an indication of separation from yourself when there's some other idea, some other narrative, some other storyline, some other voice going on. It means you've not brought the whole of yourself. And we all know what it is to be entirely immersed in an experience where they're, we're so immersed in it that there even ceases to be a distinction between us and whatever it is we're in relationship to it. So that kind of willingness to immerse ourselves and get emerged into our experience and presence, you know, to fully presence, it doesn't pan out that it's like 100% all of the time. And that's totally fine. The, you know, because that'd be another weird goal thing. And then we're like trip, tripping ourselves up like, oh, I wasn't fully present. It is about the commitment and then following through on that intentionality with the actions, right, of developing a practice that is allows us to be aware of when we're distracted from the present moment and whatever's in front of us, and then building the muscle to come back to the present moment. Like, oh, there it is. I went away again. Here I am coming back again. And would you say that fear is actually stored in the body? And is there a way to go into that fear and rock it and cradle it and sink to it and acknowledge it as a process to be able to live in the present moment without that clinging and aversion that we talk about so often? Yes, certainly. We have residue of traumatic experience that lives in, I think, in the, you know, really in the issues or in the tissues, as they say, that live in our muscular memory and as well as our brain store memory. And so various incidents and also not being able to stay in current moment allow those things that those sensations that presence themselves to reignite the narrative of fear. So really what we have is we have sensations 
all sorts of sensations. And we have an association with certain types of sensations as fear. And that's valid. We have really good reasons to have been fearful at particular times. And when we're living out of time sync, then those sensations represents themselves. And then we have a sense of fear, whether or not there's something in that moment that actually warrants that fear. And so I believe wholeheartedly in going, and I've done this myself, I lived really in dreadful fear of running into the woman that abused me when I was a small child. And I moved back into the neighborhood that I knew that she was possibly in and her family was in. And the only thing for me to do was to go and meet that fear and go and meet the sensations that were in my body. And it allowed me not only to have a relationship with the sensations that was no longer experienced as overwhelming fear, but also to see that it was made up of all of these false ideas, things that I carried, things that I didn't actually know whether they were true or not. And I went to find out whether they were true. So it released me to go find out what was true, what was not true. And I ended up actually with forgiveness for this person that had been really a monster in my imagination. And I came to realize that, you know, like so many people that hurt, she had been also hurt and was carrying a lot. And I don't think that that, you know, that story necessarily plays out for all of us around everything. And our primary directive is to take back our lives from experiences of the past, generational past, ancestral past, by meeting the sensations directly so that we can move forward. Do you feel when you are able to come to this place of forgiveness for an abuser, do you feel that some place inside of you that was blocked was able to open up? You know, I would say that I have forgiveness of abusers and forgiveness of abusers for me structures it as it's not actually about them. It is actually entirely about me being able to be released from the hardness, the harshness, the sense of fear, the feeling of having been victimized. So I have forgiveness of abusers. It's not for them. It's actually for me. It's entirely for me. And great that they get something out of it. But that's actually, you know, and I think helping people to understand like that shift in focus that makes it somehow about them. It is really about setting ourselves free from the feeling of harm, the feeling of anger in our heart that hardens us and impacts all of the relationships that we have, impacts our sense of intimacy and vulnerability. And those things we are entitled to in our humanity and whoever it is that harmed us are not entitled to keep that from us. Even if there's no possibility of reconciliation or hugging it out and that person may not even be embodied, but you free yourself. That's especially necessary when so many of us have been harmed by structural and systemic violence and oppression. Because if we're going to wait and, you know, to be able to hug it out with everyone, we're going to be waiting a really long time. So I often say, you know, we cannot acquiesce our liberation, waiting until the systems, you know, come down and kind of meet us where we are. So we have to do our own labor. It seems like we're looking for a security blanket and yearning for comfort and connection. And addiction is at an all-time high. And I think we're feeling more alone, insecure, and uncomfortable than ever before. We're actually in pain and we're desperately seeking relief. Can you talk to the addicts and the loved ones of addicts? Do you have any words on that? 
So I want to distinguish that one of the challenges of our society is that we do focus on particular types of substances in terms of abuse. And so others of us have different forms of addiction that don't end up on the list of addiction, you know, in the formal sense. And it's really important for us to recognize that because then we can see that so many of us are in a wave of all kinds of addiction. It might just be Netflix, it you know, might be Instagram, it might be all of these other ways that we distract ourselves from ourselves because we're lacking a core sense of belonging and connection that is endemic to being a whole human being. And these times of divisiveness, the conditions of separation have heightened that. So it absolutely makes sense that what people are doing is trying to fill their need for a sense of connection. And since the sensation of love and the release of chemical experience of having some immersion in like love and that kind of like lovely lostness that comes from like friendship and all of those things. So I want to say, first of all, it makes sense that that's what people are doing in these conditions and what we can do as the individuals that are overwhelmed by that addiction is again, get to the heart of what it is that we're missing. Like, what are we filling with whatever it is that we're using as the addictive device? It's a stand-in for something that is really true and needs to be touched and addressed by you. And for those of you in support of those of us that are addicted, to really hold that addiction, it's an illness of the heart. It's an illness of, of the human sense of need to be connected and need to belong that is not currently being fulfilled. And how can we together go and meet that need of what it is that's missing for us so that we are reconnected in our sense of wholeness? Okay, we could just take that answer and let it go viral. And I think the world would have this beautiful exhalation. Shifting gears a little bit, the sixth podcast was one that I did with my husband, Rodney, and the title was Sex, Love, and Spirituality. Do you have anything to say about that? The combination, the interweaving, if you want a pass, you get a pass. Sex, Love, and Spirituality, go. You know, we have done really weird things that have, in our society, having been the recipients, particularly of Eastern spiritual traditions, where we have divorced our sense of right relationship with our sexual being from our spiritual practice. And so they're like these things that live in these really divorced corners of the world. And we have seen all sorts of melees and mishap as a result of that, seeing so many teachers of esteem and, you know, certainly accomplishment, then be completely warped around their sexual identity and relationship and having right relationship with sex and, and with students and so on and so forth. And I think that's because it's not been integrated and we haven't allowed for an integration that isn't reduced to some buzz language, like, you know, tantric something, you know, where it just goes off into weird fantasy types of things that aren't grounded and rooted in relationship in the energy of our spiritual potency and the energy of sexual potency are the same energy and not cutting one off in order to allow for the other is not the path of householders. It's the path of monastics. It's the path of those of us that, you know, have chosen to be celibate. So I think that that's part of the challenges. We've received many teachings that are from monastic traditions. And as a result of that, 
don't have good language and good understanding of how to really relate as fully integrated householders, even those of us that have titles like priests, you know, such as myself, there's just no language around how to navigate it. We also have absorbed these cultures, at least in the form of Zen, you know, where they didn't have to deal with it because temples were passed from family to family and they sort of have a whole society. And our society at large is like messed up about sex. So, you know, it makes sense that it's a mess. And we would do well, those of us that are in roles of guiding, supporting, teaching, nurturing people to make absolutely certain that sex and sexuality are woven in our teachings and that we're teaching regularly on the nature of relationship and right relationship to our sexual uh, impulses and capacities and, and all of those things rather than writing them off for something for someone else to deal with. Thank you. How important is it to listen and act appropriately to the cycles of life for a woman, the monthly cycle or the moon or age or the day? the cycles that just keep repeating themselves. Can you just talk about how we need to show up during these different cycles, the rhythm of which there are so many? You know, I was trying to think of what entity lives above and beyond the natural and organic cycles and rhythms of life. And I was thinking about gods and goddesses and thought, well, yeah, even they have to yield to the natural and organic cycles of birth and old age and sickness and death. And in the great sense of like one cycle of entire life, but also in the minute sense of those cycles in just in our daily lives, that there's energy birth and then, you know, decline, I'll call it decline, and then death, and then, you know, re-engaging again. It's absolutely critical. And our lack of attention to our own internal cycles, I'm really into this, like my, you just came into my world, you know, that our ultradian rhythms as well as our circadian rhythms are absolutely critical for us to be in right relationship with nature. It is so much a part of why we're causing such devastation to the planet, because we're out of relationship with cycles with natural cycles. We think we can just live forever. All we should do is sort of like live forever at the same energy, at the same output, the same productivity. I don't even use it. I use the word lifeativity to say that we need to be in rhythm and in, in sync with the cycles of life itself. And then there are the bigger cycles of life that are happening planetarily and, you know, and all of those. So to not regard those is to beg devastation to people, to planet, to everything that we hold dear. All right, you nailed that one, as is all of them. It's just such a pleasure to have you here. Stuff that makes you heavy, shut off, confused. I mean, even too many clothes in your closet, like literal possessions, but also just this feeling of needing more in all arenas, you know, even in information and accolades, and you might even say even in spiritual endeavors. Could you just talk to us about that need for more, for bigger? Yeah, it's the other kind of emptiness, you know, there's a great hole of lack of fulfillment, lack of connection. I want to say trust in the basic goodness of who we are, that fundamental trust in the basic goodness of who we are so that we are enough as we are, what we have is enough. And there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, I'd like to accomplish this, but if you come undone as a result of not accomplishing it, 
if the truth of who you are is assailed by not being able to acquire a this or a that or a, or a who, <laughs> you know, then what you're navigating with is fundamental lack of trust in yourself. And that is, I think, the essential calling for those of us that are in societies that are not monastic, that it's not just to merge with the great oneness, <laughs> but actually to be really, really deeply in tuned and okay with oneself. And then we find the great oneness through the vehicle of trusting and loving and accepting the complexity, the flaws, the weirdness of who it is that we are. And all of the grasping, not aspiration, aspiration is fine, but the grasping. The desperation. Yeah, the desperation. Can you do a quick, deep dive into the vast subject of grief and service? Oh, yeah. Quick, deep dive. You know, it comes back to that sense of immersion and allowing ourselves to be immersed in something other than our own stories. And so service gives us access to immersing ourselves in something that's not about us at all. And it's this back door to coming into wholeness with ourselves that by figuring out that we are okay just as we are, that really the grief that we're carrying, again, that's kind of like cycling in the past, right? It's grief depression. These are like turning around backwards and looking over our shoulder and saying something somehow, you know, wasn't enough, didn't meet my expectations. And so throwing yourself wholly in to something that's not about you will actually remind you that you are completely okay and that whatever it is that you're grieving is part of the cycle of birth and death and loss. That is just what it is that makes us human. It's what allows us to appreciate everything that we have for the moments and times that we do have them. And that the cycle demands that everything has to be let go of at some point. And we're completely okay. But allowing ourselves to be present into service takes our mind off of the looping on poor little me and what has happened to me. And service puts us back into, again, right relationship with all of humanity, knowing that we have a place we have something to offer, that we are a gift and we have a gift. And what we do in the world is gifting and returning the gift. Do you have any last things, any last message that you weren't able to talk about that you just want to put out there? I would love to invite people to join me in the podcast that I'm doing with Himalaya as well, which is called Mindful by Design. And I love the title of it and I love what we're doing because just as your beautiful questions have surfaced, it really is about how do you design a mindfulness in your own life? How do we know something of our own lives so that these concepts that can seem far away from us or like someone else does it comes right into relationship, right? We get into right relationship with just a practice for ourselves that allows us to be present, to reconnect to our fundamental wholeness, and to do that in a way that's, you know, straightforward and isn't caught up in psychobabble and traditions that kind of get in the way of letting us really make it our own. I personally cannot wait for that podcast. Everybody gather your hands in front of your heart and bowing your head and just giving this a deep sense of gratitude for having this time with Reverend Angel. Namaste. Namaste. You've been listening to a conversation with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, and this is Yoga for Life. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening. To 
get the most out of this show, check out the yoga videos available only on the Himalaya Learning platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. To access exclusive content for this show and others like it, go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code YOGA for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy. This podcast is produced, recorded, and mixed by Cynthia Daniels at Monk Music Studios in East Hampton, New York. The theme music for Yoga for Life was composed by Rob and Melissa. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.